they said, please, can you help us? We would like bags of food to be given to, and we'll give you the 25 top people who are poor. We said, great. So we got bags of food together. We went and delivered them. They didn't need any food. The cupboards were full. They had a nice place. They didn't need anything. And we found this one after another after another. So I went back to the association. I sat with the president, and I said, they don't need food, do they? And he and the secretary looked at each other like they were caught. And they said, uh, no, actually, we don't need food. I said, then why did you ask me to give them food? And they said, because they need attention. They're lonely. Abundant Hope International helps Holocaust survivors, especially in Israel, through their partnerships and volunteers from around the world. Abundant Hope International is in the homes and residences of Holocaust survivors to help alleviate loneliness, evaluate and meet their needs, renovate their homes, and most importantly, count these precious people their friends. Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Today, we welcome back a dear friend to the show, Mid-South Viewpoint, here on Bot Radio Network, Susan Hagee, who is president of Abundant Hope International. Shalom, Susan. Welcome to Bot Radio Network in Memphis, Tennessee, all the way from Israel. Shalom to you. Yes, I am. All the way here. <laughs> when did you arrive? I arrived a week ago. Okay. And you said you have no problem with jet lag? No, I don't. I, God has blessed me with that all these years. No jet lag. Every time I just fly into Pennsylvania, say hello to family, and then get on the road. <laughs> well, we've had you on several times, the program. Really, this all started back in 2004 when you first started yes. visiting Israel and learning about the plight of Holocaust survivors. Yes, I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about Holocaust survivors. And I'm an example of if you do what God tells you to do, you will fall right into what he has made you for. And I didn't want to go to Israel. I didn't want anything to do with old people. And here I was <laughs> with the oldest in the world. You know, recently, I did a program here with a World War II Army veteran, 97 years old, sharp as attack, the wit and <laughs> recalling stories. What a delight. And knowing the history that that man has walked through and is able to bring us and to remind us of, you know, and yet his generation is dying. That's the same generation of people in the age bracket and even older that you have a ministry towards. That is correct. In fact, the survivors are among the oldest people in the world. I have many of them that are in their 90s. And we have, uh, we have one 100-year-old. Another one's going to be 100 this year. I have several more who are going to be 99 this year, all sharp. And one of them, actually, she is 99 now. And she was in Auschwitz and in Bergen-Belsen and knew Anne Frank. Oh, my. And talking to her is amazing. She's written books. Listen, this woman's 99, and she goes to the high school every week in order to talk to the students and tell them about what it's like for a Holocaust survivor in the camp. She met Dr. Mengele. She's got a story to tell. She'll stand for three hours and tell them everything. She's amazing. Susan, what a... A precious gift, really, yes. that God has allowed you to connect with these dear, precious people and hearing their stories. And, and there are some people who say, oh, that never happened. That's not even a part of our history. People want to rewrite history of nations yes. all over, not only in America, but also in Israel. We have started a new project. We do it as we can afford it. I am having videographer in Israel, and we are doing documentaries of the survivors. They tell their story in their own language as long as they want to talk. 
Some it's one hour, some it's three hours. They just tell everything. We take that and we do a voiceover into English and we're putting them on YouTube and we're giving the original to the survivor for their family because many of them had their stories put on videotape with Steven Spielberg, but they're degrading. Videotape doesn't last. No. And it hasn't been changed over. So we're giving that in the newest form. The technology um, that's, that's the best, absolutely. the digital technology, yeah. Absolutely. Susan, I was reading a report from PBS, Public Broadcasting System in the United States, that reported Israel provides great efforts to remember the six million Jewish victims of the Nazi genocide and to honor them as survived heroes. It also says that yet among Israel's estimated 165,000 survivors, roughly one in three lives in poverty. And that's according to a survivor's advocacy group. Survivors receive government stipends. Many still depend on food donations organized by nonprofits. And again, that's according to PBS. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. I, I will tell you my personal experience. And, and that's all I can do. And their report is roughly one in three lives in poverty. I haven't found any living in poverty. So you have levels of life, you know, and, and what you can afford. And certainly I have met some that are well-to-do because they arrived early um, in the beginning of Israel. And so they not only worked elsewhere, went through the Holocaust, but then worked again. And they ended up with two pensions plus what is given to them by Israel. So they're doing very well. They do get a stipend. Everybody gets a stipend. Also, if you are a Holocaust survivor, you are registered. You have to have been registered somewhere in the Holocaust. For instance, if you are in a ghetto, your name was on a list. If you were in a camp, your name was on a list. And if you were registered in a, a town and the Nazis came in and they took over the town, you were registered there. Therefore, they are able to trace where you were during a certain time. So they have to know where you were and that you actually were in the Holocaust because obviously there are people who are trying to claim it who were not. Yeah. Yeah, we run into so that. So you get the stipend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they want the stipend, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but now it also depends how much they get. They get some from Israel, but they also get money from Germany, according to how long they were, where they were, their experience. You also could lose money. There was one man that I know of who uh, escaped the camp, and he got nothing from Germany because he wasn't there long enough. He was in the camp less than 14 months. And because of that, and because he escaped, they wouldn't give him any money. Wow. So there's a lot of politics in this. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now, as far as the organizations and giving money to the survivors or food or whatever, I had one group. In each city, you have organizations of survivors, associations. They are not made by the government. They are made by the survivors themselves because no one was helping them. The country was in chaos in the beginning. There, there wasn't any way to really organize. So they organized themselves. These are the Russian, okay? The ones from the European have clubs, not associations. It's different. And they act different. They approach it differently. So I'm going to talk about the Russian associations. They're the ones that I'm mostly involved with. Now the presidents are 90 years old, 
and the secretary is 87, and the treasurer is 92, they're still taking care of themselves. They're the ones that have been going to the Knesset and lobbying for their own needs all these years. Wow. So now, of course, you do have people helping, you do have organizations helping, but you go to this organization that's already been formed, this association, and you help them. Yes. So I went to the ones in, uh, in a major city, I won't name it, and they said, please, can you help us? We would like bags of food be given to, and we'll give you the 25 top people who are poor. We said, great. So we got bags of food together. We went and delivered them. They didn't need any food. The cupboards were full. They had a nice place. They didn't need anything. And we found this one after another after another. So I went back to the association. I sat with the president and I said, they don't need food, do they? And he and the secretary looked at each other like they were caught. And they said, uh, no, actually, we don't need food. I said, then why did you ask me to give them food? And they said, because they need attention. They're lonely. I said, I know that. I'll be glad to give them attention and, and visit them and everything without the food if yeah. they don't need it. And they said, oh, it's such a relief. They were doing this only because they need attention. To get people to knock on the door. To get people to knock on the door, to sit with them, to hold their hand, to cry with them. That's all they wanted. Wow. That's where your heart is. That's what you want that's to do. That's what we want to do. And, and it's what Abundant Hope International has been doing since yes. it began in 2008, I believe. 2004. 2004. Well, I mean, that's when you first went. But I'm talking yes. about as you got off the ground and as the organization, the nonprofit came together. Wasn't it a couple of years later? The, the organization was developed a couple of years later, but I was doing it from day well, one no, when I, I was yeah, there. Yeah, your heart was there. I, yeah. I realize that. Brings me to another question, Susan, because you know, here in the U.S., we'll see from time to time TV commercials talking about the horrible conditions. They may be showing video footage of Holocaust survivors living in the slums and the cold winters. They need blankets. You know, can you help? I mean, are these legit? How long have you been seeing the same ad? Yeah, it usually airs quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> quite a few years. Yeah. And I would imagine the people on that video are long gone. Yeah. I'll tell you, there was another organization that actually started using our footage and our pictures on their website mm. to ask for money. Yeah. And I called them on it. Yeah. And this is what I was told by the head of that organization. If we don't show pictures and talk about Holocaust survivors, how are we supposed to get donations? Let's uh, move on to current things that are happening in Israel right now. I see where the shekel is continuing to decline. It hit a two-year low against the euro. The national currency has been on a downward trend for several months amid the government's efforts to radically overhaul the country's judiciary and as Israel reels from a string of terrorist attacks. Are you finding that too? Okay. The shekel goes up and down, but right now I think it's doing well. It's doing well. I do. Isn't it interesting? I just got that off a newspaper today. <laughs> I think it's doing okay. I don't think it's a problem. Yeah. The radical change, judiciary change, okay, here's the deal. Think about our Supreme Court and their Supreme Court. We have a Congress. We vote in the people who are in Congress. They make our laws. If there's any problem, people can go to the Supreme Court to get the issue taken care of. Yes? Yeah. All right, let's go to Israel. You have the Knesset. It's like the Congress. The people are voted in, so they're put in there and they make the laws. The Supreme Court are appointed people from the past, just like ours, except it has changed over time where the Supreme Court is, has a different role. Now, they can vacate any law that is created by the Knesset. Really? Yeah. They could just take and say, well, we don't, we don't think that law is a good idea. 
So that's what Netanyahu is trying to change. He's trying to put it more like what we have, where let the people who have been voted in do their job. Susan, the Knesset, as you mentioned just now, is not just made up of Jewish-Israeli congressmen. There's Arabs that are part of this Congress, too. That's right. Some people don't realize that. Yes, and it's like we have two main parties, and then you have independent. That's that's easy here. I don't know. It's like 26 parties or something over there. It's a whole <laughs> bunch of them, and it's all s- split up, and, and they have to form a coalition. Okay, will you agree with me, and you agree with me, and you have to form a party to be in charge. And that can switch at any time, and they can call for elections any time. Very unusual. It's interesting to study how the government operates, all the news stuff you hear, too. At certain times of year, I know flash floods can be an issue in certain areas of Israel, especially in some of the desert, dry places. It's in the desert areas. It's the wadi where water has washed down and it's got a deep rut. And those fill up very fast because you have it raining in the north and it runs downhill. And so by the time it gets down to the Dead Sea, literally the mountains that are right along the Dead Sea collects, shoots out over the mountain top and crashes down and takes out the roads. It's amazing. Yeah, I've been down there when this is happening. It's yeah, amazing. It's, it can, it's very dangerous, Yes. too. And it's taken lives. Yes. When you're traveling to Israel, usually your tour guides, if you're in that particular area like Brown Masada, Dead Sea, they, they look out for you. That's one thing about the Israeli tour guides. When you go they're under- They're very good. They're excellent. I mean, they're actually sanctioned by the government. You don't get to just say, I'm going to be an Israeli tour guide. That is correct. You have to go through a very difficult training. So you live in the northern part of Israel, where you have been. So how are things going on now? You reported to me just recently, Byron, they're bombing us in our city. Yeah. After I got here, as soon as I left Israel, then the bombing starts. It's just, I don't know, every time. And Tiger, your cat, is he okay? He's doing fine. And my friend Louise is taking care of him. She's staying at my place. God has given me a beautiful place to stay, and it looks over the Mediterranean Sea. And so she loves the sea. And so she's liking to stay with my cat. But right after I left, I mean, within 24 hours, she wrote and said, well, we're in the bomb shelter. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And the rockets were coming over. This isn't unusual, though, for you, right? You've been there for this type of experience. There have been a few rockets that have come, and I have been in the bomb shelter because of it, but it's been small. This was an attack from Gaza and from Lebanon, but they discovered that the Lebanese attack was not Hezbollah. That was Hamas on both ends. I mean, this is something you live with. When you're in Israel, I mean, and some people say, well, that's the reason why I don't want to go. Well, I always have to say, I honestly felt safer in Israel than I do in the States. That is right. I feel safer there than I do here. There was no bomb you know, alerts when we were there, but everywhere you look in the hotels, you know, there's places, there's bomb shelters, there's things set up. People are yeah. prepared. They know what to do. Most all the Israeli citizens have been military trained, men and women. So it gives you a sense of a little bit more safety. It's really amazing there. Um, it really is. And it's not like the attacks are that often. Yeah. It seems like it, but they're not. And we can go for a very long time without any kind of attack or any kind of alert. And as you said, everybody goes into the army. They're all trained. And actually, when terrorists attack, guess who takes them out? It's usually not the police. It's the citizens. Yeah. There was one instance in Jerusalem where the terrorists grabbed a bulldozer and was running over people. And eight different civilians jumped onto it and shot him, all eight of them before the police could even get to him. So we all feel safe. I like seeing them carrying their rifles around. Yeah. 
You've been living in Israel now for how many years? 19 years. 19 years. I know you have special friendships with Holocaust survivors that you've been visiting over the years, yes. and many of them, sadly, you've seen pass. Talk about some of those other friendships you've built over over the years in your community, and not just not just Israel or, or Jewish relationships, maybe some Arab friendships, too, that you might have developed since you've been there. Yes. I mean, I had made friends with an Arab pastor in my city of Akko. And for a number of years, I was going to two different congregations, and his was one of them. So I'd gotten to know a number of different Arab people. Akko, the old city, you have the old city, which is five to 7,000 years old. It's one of the, it is the oldest seaport in the world. And then you have the newer part of Akko. And so that's a mix. It's still more Jewish than it is Arab, but it's a high Arab population. And so I've gotten to know a lot of people. And it's just, I, I go to, on Friday morning at 10 o'clock every week, we go downtown and we have what we call the Akko Parliament. Now, they call it a parliament when people get together, citizens get together, and they solve the problems of the world. So from 10 to 11 every Friday, I'm sitting with businessmen and we solve the problems of the world. And the Arabs stop in and they get into the politics and they get into the arguments and they're screaming and yelling and everything. And of course, at the end, they all shake hands, hug each other and leave. And this is every week we sit there and have donuts and coffee. But they always ask me, the Gentile, the only Gentile sitting there, so what do you think? And I get to say what I think, not only about politics, but they start asking me about the Bible. And they start asking me all kinds of questions about, all right, you talk about Yeshua, Jesus. We want to know what you think. It's been very, very interesting getting their input. And, and sometimes it gets a little sensitive. But yeah. And it all happens on Shabbat. <laughs> no, <laughs> Friday say, morning. Oh, well, before Shabbat. Before Shabbat. Before Shabbat, yes. okay. For some might be wondering, even today, Shabbat, Friday at sundown. Friday night to Saturday night. That's right. Help our listeners who have never experienced what takes place in your town there on Shabbat. I love Shabbat there. I miss it when I'm here. Friday, most people don't work. The schools are off. The stores that are open are open until 2 o'clock, and very few of them are open later. And it gets quieter and quieter as the day goes on. It's sundown. That's when the Jewish people will light the candles that they have, and they will bring in the Shabbat by prayer. It is perfectly quiet. It's very, very nice. And it stays quiet until Saturday evening when the sun goes down again. On Shabbat, uh, on Saturday morning, I go to congregation, which would be like church, or they have synagogue that they go to. We worship, we read our scripture, we sing. I am very, very privileged to be part of Kehilat Carmel. And it's actually built on the very, very top spot of the mountain. It's, and this was started by Karen and David Davis. David passed away about five years ago. Karen continues. She is the worship leader and has been there for 30 years. I want to tell you, the ministry from there, the music, the worship is incredible. And it is Jew and Arab together. Is this Mount Carmel you're seeing? Yes. Okay. Which has a very important place in biblical history. Yes, and this next week, they're having the Elijah Summit. It's a conference there with people from all over the world. You know, I don't know if this is this way year-round, but I remember in 2018, on both occasions of going to Mount Carmel, it was so windy. 
It was making me think, you know, when he called the prophets to help me out here to build the build uh, the altar, to build the altar. Thank you, build yes. the altar where he drenched his down and then called down. The fire came and consumed that and then everything around it. I was thinking, I wonder if it was that windy. <laughs> Is that typical year round? It can be. But, you know, the one thing about where they have that monastery and where they say this is where Elijah called down the fire, it actually is the only spot that it could be because it's the only place on the mountain that had a natural well. Imagine all the barrels of water they would have had to bring up that mountain otherwise. Right. And Elijah the Tishbite, across from that spot is the town of Tishbe. He was just right home. He just walked up the mountain from his house. I think that it verifies it. Elijah on the mountain is what HaKarmel is based on, and they have even built the stage. It's all out of the stone with 12 rocks representing the altar that was built. If you come back to Israel, really, you've got to come to HaKarmel. Yeah. I've, it's I've amazing. Got, i got to come. And I want to come back because once you go to Israel once— it's like eating a Lay's potato chip. You can't just eat. You can't just go one no, time. No, you have to go back. You go back because you can't see everything at one time. That's right. Well, you asked me about relationships with the survivors. Yes. I want to tell you something that's been happening. Now, of course, we've been praying for them all these years and visiting them. But the Lord was very clear to me that he wanted me to just love them, hug them, and kiss them, and, and not tell them about him, which I didn't understand at all. I was, like, totally dumbfounded by this. Like, what are you talking about? But he was right because I knew absolutely nothing about the Jews, about the survivors, and the customs of the, the Jewish people or the country. So I had a lot to learn. I, that's what I've been doing. I've just been faithful. All of us have been faithful in visiting, loving, hugging them, and just being there for them. And they have come to really, really expect friendship from us, and they love us, and we love them. So we went to see a survivor who wasn't feeling well. Her name is Ducia. And so we said to Ducia before we left, uh, would you like us to pray for you? And she said, no, you don't have to. Somebody already did. And I was like, uh, who prayed for her? I don't know of anybody. She goes, yeah. And and not only that, but um, she named another survivor. She was here too. She's the one that I went to church with. And I'm about falling off my chair. <laughs> I'm like, somebody prayed for you. You went, you went to church? You know? And so it was the church that I used to go to with the Russians. And she goes, yeah, yeah. And they come here and they pray for me. And, and I've been there several times now. I leave like, what just happened here? So we go see another survivor who's not feeling well. And she goes, well, you know that I've been having Bible studies in my home. And my translator and I are just looking at each other. What? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, you know. And she reaches over and pulls out a Bible. It's a Russian Bible. And she says, I accepted Yeshua. And so now I have Bible studies in my home. Another survivor, Fira. Fira says to me, you know Michelle, don't you? And I said, uh, no, who's Michelle? She goes, well, she's a believer like you. Like there's only two of us, you know, in Israel. I should know her. I said, no, I don't know her. She goes, well, she's the one that told me about Jesus. Now I'm listening. And I go, yes. She goes, well, she told me that I could have him in my heart just like her. So I did. I accepted Jesus. And she said, and now I'm telling everybody in my hostel. And it's like a hotel sort yeah. of for, for survivors. Right. Yes. She said, and I'm making them lunch, and I'm taking them things and seeing what they need. This woman had Parkinson's. She was shaking badly. And she's just being Jesus to all of them. Wow. And then, then she passed away. And I know where she is. Yes. 
this is happening more and more. All of our prayer, all of our friendship, loving them, hugging them, we're seeing it come to fruition. We didn't know what we were sowing except the love of Jesus and the compassion. And we are seeing the harvest coming in. Yes. And I'm just in awe. This is happening every week. This is not something that's once in a while. And we just had another one, very special couple from Texas. Uh, He's a pastor. They go every year to meet them. And they visit survivors in one of our cities. And they went to see, I love her name, Maria Musica. And Maria Musica would always talk to them for three hours. And at the end of three hours, she would say, I have one more question. And they were always like, Maria, we have to go. You know, but this time she said, I have one more question. You keep telling me about Yeshua. I know he's in your heart, but I want to know, am I allowed to have him in my heart? And they said, well, certainly you are. She said, okay. So she did. She accepted the Lord. And they left and went back to the United States. And three months later, she passed away. And she joined her husband because her husband was a believer. Wow. Praise God. This is what's happening. Without us doing it, God is showing, if you are faithful, if you do what I say, I will answer. It's the tree. The tree, you know, this is our logo. Our logo is the tree. But our logo is not just the tree, which the Jewish people, that's life for them. For the believers, the stream beneath the tree in our logo and going up into the tree, for that, that's life. So we have the combination of the Jewish life and the combination of the believer's life together. And on that logo, the leaves were brown, but they're turning green with the stream of water, the living water that's coming in. And we are seeing it happen today. Susan, praise God. Great and mighty things he is doing, has done, will do. And he's working. This is so wonderful, you know, to hear those testimonies. Thank you so much for what you're allowing Christ to do in and through you for his kingdom, for his glory in the land of Israel. Thank you. I do want to say one more thing. We had been talking about the the organizations that are coming in. I'm very appreciative. Whether they're giving food or they're giving clothes, it is attention. Yes. And I am grateful for that. Yes. And the survivors are too. And through it all, the Lord takes care of them. Yes, he does. Now, if folks want more information about Abundant Hope International, what can they do? They can go to our website at www.ahi-il.org. O-R-G. There's a place on there where you can donate. There's lots of information. I wrote way too much to put on that website. It's it's full. Yeah. And two, friend, if you would like to travel to Israel sometime, uh, you might want to go to the website prior to going, and it would be a great opportunity for you to connect with Susan. Maybe if you would like, your yes. group would like to go and visit Holocaust survivors while you're there, Absolutely. Susan can help arrange that. And I also want to mention you have a book. We've given away copies of this book too, and we have a few copies here at the station, and I would like to give those away if folks would like a copy of Why Is Great Grandma So Sad, a book that you've written. Yes, and it's very good for 7 to 97. Yes. And it takes about 30 minutes to read, yes. and that's it, and it's to an introduction to the Holocaust. Yes. God bless you, Susan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.